0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, here we go again. They're calling it the emergency break after implementing a province-wide shutdown twice over the past year. Sounds like the provincial government is ready to do it again. How effective is it going to be? Well, we'll find out. The Canadian government is making moves to strengthen Canada's vaccine manufacturing capacity. Dr. Laurie Turnbull joins us with the details of what made Canada's vaccine program all of a sudden a front-burner issue for the federal and provincial governments. And according to scientists, the roar of traffic and aircraft and even the ringing of telephones are linked to negative health effects. Dr. Toriyamo explains the effects of noise pollution on our hearts. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We could well be looking at another one-month lockdown here in Ontario, and this is no April Fool. Uh, the uh, Premier will make the official announcement later on this afternoon, but it's looking as if uh, we're going back. Well, I don't know if it's grey or color. what colour it's going to be right now. Uh, let's uh, check in with uh, Global's Daryl Boland. He's got the details. Sources tell Global News the Ford government is activating its emergency break for four weeks across the entire province, with lockdown measures set to take effect prior to the Easter weekend. The decision follows a lengthy meeting of the Ontario Cabinet Wednesday night, but keep in mind, many of the logistical details are still being sorted out and could change before the official announcement later today. All sources say restrictions could look similar to those already in place for areas under the grey lockdown level of Ontario's pandemic framework. So for retail stores, that means staying open with a 25% capacity limit, but for restaurants, indoor and patio dining will be banned, leaving them only with takeout and delivery options. All of this comes as the number of COVID-19 patients in Ontario's intensive care hit a new high Wednesday of 421, but new modelling data shows that number could double by the end of April if stricter measures aren't implemented. Darren Boland, Global News. So uh, as we said, we're going to get the details on this probably just after lunchtime today, but the the, the the rumors are out there. The schools may be closed, they may not be. I'm told though, that uh, in a number of uh, schools here in the Hamilton area, the students are being told when they leave today to take all their personal belongings, which kind of indicates they're not expecting them to be back on Tuesday. Uh, but details on that to come. So what does this mean, and, and just how effective is this going to be? Uh, to discuss this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni, who is the Director of the Ontario Science Table, of Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: Thanks for having me. Good morning.
0: I remember a discussion you and I had weeks ago where you were an urging the premier at that time to do this before this, this uh, coronavirus phase three, I guess it is, and the variants got out of hand. Uh, is, is what he's going to be announcing today too little, too late?
1: Um, so first of all, I'm not in a position to urge the premier to do anything, which is interesting. <laughs> well, yeah. But I just, uh, I, you know, my, my role is to uh, to discuss the obvious. And uh, when I start to see, you know, that things really just go into the wrong direction, I need to be honest with people and just tell them what what it is. And I know a lot of people thought I was too alarmist. Unfortunately, I was not, and I could have told you so weeks ago. The problem right now is it's also damn counterintuitive. You know, where people then think, "Oh, it's going well, etc." I look at the data, and I don't know exactly it's not going well. Uh, and here we are now. It's you know we need to make the best out of it. The important part is now to look forward and to do the best we can to get this thing under control and be aware of it's not easy.
0: And I understand that you you any time we've talked in the past, I know doctor, you don't like to get dragged into the politics of this and that's understandable. But I I'd I share your angst when i when I hear the premier saying, Oh, we're doing a great job. No, you're not. The numbers indicate that no, we're not. Uh and, and a lot of that has to do with policy. So I, and and I, lo- I love the attitude here, but okay, that's where we are. You know, No sense in, in worrying about what happened four weeks ago, because this is where we are now. Uh, how effective is this going to be right now? Because these numbers are pretty scary, especially, uh, as you warned us about weeks ago, the impact this is having on, on, on ICUs.
1: Yeah, look, it is challenging right now. It depends on every single one of us, and it depends on the discipline of all the employers out there, what they're doing. Everybody now is just, this is a crisis. Okay, and everybody needs to help now, everybody. There's absolutely no reason not to do the best we can now. This, for instance, means that every single employer out there who is who is uh, classified as an essential business really uh, clears the ship as much as they can. Meaning, for instance, that the workplace measures are are just immaculate. They just need to be perfect. People shall not when they have, you know, it's simple things that make a difference. Masks all the time, you know, for essential workers. Two meters distance all the time. When they go and eat lunch, you know, during the lunch break, they need to go outside, sit on a bench outside two meters apart because they need to take off the mask. And we also have a problem inside, you know, with these little places not being ventilated enough. Everybody can help now. And uh, then, of course, you know, everybody who thinks out there, oh, I'm not affected, I'm an exception, forget about that. Everybody needs to do the right thing now, then we can do it, then we would not even need four weeks, you know. We could do it in three weeks if people did the right thing. And if we enable those who are actually just helping, you know, to get the food on the shelves in the supermarkets and get the good to us, if we also enable those to to, to, uh, to, uh, do the right thing and if we protect them, that's what we would need to do now
0: and i guess it's really better being overly cautious here and i think we've talked about this in the past as we i think as, as a communities a number of communities we've let our guard down a little bit over the last six or seven months and i understand it might be pandemic fatigue i get that uh but the social distancing yeah maybe not so much anymore masking yeah sort of kind of uh we, we really need to go back to the mindset i think we had about 12 months ago when we were worried about this and worried about the impact it was going to have on us
1: look it's not overly cautious It's just acknowledging the fact that the success of this virus is based on the the pure fact that it gets transmitted before every single one of us knows that we're ill. That's when it gets transmitted. And this risk is increased now. So if people just think, yeah, you know, I'm not affected, I'm not ill, or they think, oh, my friend over there, he's not, etc. That's how this all happens. That's why this virus is so successful, because people's minds just believe, oh, no, it's not a problem. You know, we're both healthy, you know
0: what the, the vaccination program has to be tied into this i guess and maybe that was one of the reasons why people seem to be a little more lackadaisical about this as they figured well the vaccine's on the way we've just, just as well got this thing beat uh but we're being told and i think you were one of the first folks to, to mention this to us as well doctor the vaccination doesn't make you bulletproof i mean you could still get this and you could still be a carrier
1: first of all you know to think that vaccines at that point in time will help us enough is just wishful thinking you know it's impossible because we're not far enough in the uh, in the vaccination program Second, we now first need to get the first needles into people's arms and into those who actually are most burdened. You know, this also means we need to reconsider. The face of the pandemic has changed now. We need to reconsider how do we now make make sure that those who experience the biggest burden right now actually gets protected through needles. That's the, the the second thing. Then it will only be one needle and not two yet. As you just uh, this, this is then the story with you know the protection. What mm-hmm. we know is that we get quite a bit of protection against severe disease after one dose, but we can still be silent carriers, as you were just saying, means we need also to, be, to keep alert once we have uh, received the first dose. So absolutely nothing changes, and we just need to be extremely nimble now that we just ro- uh, roll out the vaccine program in a way that we get maximal protection for the province.
0: I, I, we get, don't know all the details, of course. The, the premier is going to make, I guess, the final announcement around one o'clock this afternoon. Uh, but from what we've heard, uh, where things are for the most part going to stay open, and all there's going to be restricted, uh, you know, amounts of people that are going to be allowed in stores and, and things of this nature. Restaurants, of course, only outdoor dining. Does this, in, in your mind, considering what we need to do, which is a monumental task at this stage to try to stop the spread of this, uh, do, do these measures that we're talking about here go far enough?
1: So, you know, we probably discussed that before. What what we feel relatively strongly at the science table is that we need to make this really, really strong distinction between inside and outside. Mm -hmm. People need to be aware of inside is unsafe if there's a person in there who doesn't belong to your household, period. Nothing else. This is like, you know, sex without a condom. Without somebody, who you're not just, just there, there, you don't do that. You use a condom, period. Here you just need to be aware of you, you're not inside with other people who don't belong to your household, period. Nothing else. If everybody follows that, ro- that uh, rule, and then we, just, we, we then still have all the essential workers who need to be inside with other people, they need to be extremely strict, and we try to protect them, then we get this under control. Outside is a different story. Outside means that if you have the two meters distance and uh, if you, are, you, know, if, if you, if you ha- are in a situation like on Young Street that you know I could go clo- come closer than two meters when sure. I walk you know, uh, along the street, then you need to wear a mask. If you do all of that, you're relatively safe there. You know? It's not 100%, but it's still much safer than anything inside. So people now need to get that, just everybody, and we're okay
0: let me ask you about the masks because i'm noticing that just anecdotally uh, doctor over the last couple of days especially even before this announcement came I- i'm seeing more and more people that seem to be wearing masks all the time as you say even if they're outdoors walking or whatever uh, a- driving in their own car i'm seeing them uh, is-, is it advisable I-, I i know that you're breathing your own air there but at the same time they, they- i guess they are trying to be as cautious as possible yeah. uh how what would what would your advice be for that
1: Look, if you, if you feel you want to wear the mask all the time, be my guest. But, you know, we should not, we should not communicate that, uh, you know, that this is needed because we have people out there who already are fatigued with the masks per se. So I'd rather have them wear the mask when it's really needed. When is it needed? It's needed when you're inside. And there are other people in the room also when they're 10 meters apart. And it's needed when you're outside and you're in danger that you come closer than 2 meters. Of course not when you're in a car on your own, why would you? Of course not when you walk with your, with your spouse in the park, why would you? But, but if people want to, fair enough, what would concern me much more, if I now would see young Street, you know, relatively busy perhaps, yeah. it may or may not be the case, and people would not wear a mask because they could clo- be closer than two meters. And, you know, the mask in this situation on the pavement protects you against the droplet story, that dro- droplets are not getting transmitted. That's what we want there
0: and anytime you're indoors you wear the mask whether it's in a shopping mall whether it's in a store anything like that
1: stop and leave. stop and leave. you know the masks will also help you make, reduce the risk of airborne transmission remember if the, if the if there is not enough fresh air indoors It could well be that you just share the breathing space, you know, with other people. In this situation, the mask will protect you and will protect the others a little bit. Not perfectly, but quite well. What is much more important is that we just minimize. Also, when we go to a supermarket, you know, don't lurk around in the supermarket for a long time. You go in, you get your stuff, you get out, all is good. And you wear a mask, you know. But you don't spend four hours in the supermarket and party.
0: Well, I hope not. Anyway, uh, let me ask you about the situation with schools because we're not quite sure what's going on. We're getting mixed messaging here from uh, the education minister who said, no, they're going back to school next week and they're going to have their, their break uh around right the middle of, of, of this month in April. Uh, there's also some stories coming out of Queen's Park now today, doctor, that says, no, the schools are going to be shut down uh, during this emergency break as well. Uh, what's your comfort level with that? Should we close the schools down and keep the kids at home?
1: Look, it's a very, very challenging situation there too. And, uh, you know, I can understand that people are struggling with that part. I think the basic principle that most of us agree is schools should be the last we shut down and schools should be the earliest we open up again because we need to support our kids. We need to support especially the families of essential workers out there who have children, you know, otherwise inequity even increases by keeping schools open as long as we can and very safely. What will happen now, we will see, you know, what the announcements will be. You can, uh, one could imagine different scenarios. The part which is most important is we should not make schools the scapegoat of this pandemic. This is, uh, you know, the most important part, and we need to keep them open as long as we can.
0: The other element to this too, I, was, I wanted to talk about demographics. You know, during the first wave, especially last year, uh, the overwhelming propensity of people that were getting sick and, and sadly dying were, were people that were plus 65. A lot of them in long-term care facilities, as we know. Uh, and some people Wrongfully, it labeled this as well. It's an old people's disease. You know, young people are going to be fine. And some politicians, as you know, doctor, are saying, "Hey, you know, it doesn't even affect young people." This variant that we're dealing with right now, which is now the dominant uh, virus, I guess, uh, it's under fifty that that seem to be most at risk.
1: Yeah. Look, we have a problem now. So first of all, we just need to be aware of that. The, the segment, the age segment that you see represented in the statistics now, that's the age segment of those being out there and working for us, uh, you know, as essential workers. That's what you see in this age. This doesn't mean it won't spill over to the older age groups, and then we will have a challenge there, too, just for all of those who are not vaccinated yet. You know? So, again, what is just most important now is just to realize, yes, it uh, will affect also younger people. Remember, you know, I, I said that just the other day, the average age uh, right now on ICUs with, uh, of, uh, of patients with COVID is my age. I'm 53, okay? Mm. That's the reality here. It, this is not a walk in the park, and it can actually affect every single one of us, and we just need to take that part seriously. We have, we have 35-year-olds hospitalized struggling against being admitted to the ICU. They don't have a single risk factor right now. That's the reality, and uh, and so it's not just old, old, old uh, people. You know, the old people will still be, um, you know, uh, most likely to die, which is a tragedy in itself. But I can tell you, you know, when we think about long COVID, when we think about the hospitalizations, when we think about being admitted to an ICU, this is all just extremely challenging. And that's just, you know, if we take it seriously and stop trivializing what goes on, we only trivialize because we don't understand what's happening because none of us has been in a pandemic before if we stop doing that and do the right thing we can pull this off within weeks uh,
0: doctor i always appreciate uh, spending some time with you uh, the advice we get from the ontario science table has always been very solid and uh, hopefully it's going to serve as the guiding principle for these policies going forward from the government uh, thank you so much again for this uh, enjoy your weekend and uh, we'll talk again soon i'm sure yes
1: good luck stay safe
0: And to you, too. Dr. Peter Uni, of course, the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. And and by the way, the the good doctor's point is well taken. Uh, He doesn't directly advise the premier, but on this program and on a number of other programs on television that I saw him on, he was was urging the government at that time uh, to do this lockdown before this thing got out of control, and it seemingly is out of control right now. So time will tell, I guess, whether or not this is the right thing to do. And as some people are saying today, well, it's never too late to do the right thing except there's an awful lot of people as uh, dr uni just mentioned that are on ventilators right now just not just in the hospital but ventilators 30 35 year olds uh, that are dealing with this uh, variant too so we need to take this seriously you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml with the talk about uh, the lockdown and the emergency break as they're calling it it's like hitting the emergency break after you've had the collision but anyway comes a word the other day of course in toronto about making vaccines here in Canada, which is something, of course, that we've been talking about for quite some time because it's fairly obvious since the uh, vaccine rollout started uh, late last year, of course, uh, that we're at the mercy of, of, well, a lot of other countries and, of course, the private sector companies as well that are involved in this. So uh, the announcement yesterday uh, was encouraging both the federal government, provincial government, and the private sector were involved in that. And uh, to give us some details, uh, Global's Tina Trojani joins us.
2: We are now never going to have to rely on any country, any leader, Will be self-sufficient. A very pleased Premier Ford calls today's announcement a major deal for Ontario and Canada. This is truly a, a Team Canada effort. The province will be putting up fifty-five million dollars, with four hundred and fifteen million from the federal government, in the partnership with the French pharmaceutical company Sanofi. It will add another four hundred and fifty-five million, plus almost eighty million dollars a year for research and development.
0: This facility will help us meet growing demand for domestic flu vaccines, specifically for populations at greater risk
2: of influenza. The company itself is also working on a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, the new facility will also provide the setup to fill vials and package other vaccines on a mass scale. Tina Trajani, Global News.
0: So what are the implications? Because a lot of people I talked to after the announcement that that we heard right here on the radio stations, of course, on CHML and on CFPL, uh, talked about... uh, the, you know, this idea, and, we, and a lot of people, I think, had the misperception that, ah, they're going to start making COVID vaccines here, and that's not necessarily the case. To try to get some clarity on this, we were uh, pleased to welcome Dr. Lori Turnbull to the program, Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, thank you again for the time. Great to have you with us today.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me on.
0: This, on, on the surface, looks like a very good news story, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of merit to what we need to talk here, but I think we, we need to temper our enthusiasm a little bit, no matter what's going to happen here, because the indication I got from this doctor is uh, this thing's not going to be up and running until 2027, uh, which is, a, a you know, in, in the terms of pandemics, I mean, that's a long way off.
2: That's it. So obviously, I mean, I, I think this is very much a good news announcement, and, and it, it accomplishes a lot in terms of, obviously creating a vaccine capacity for Canada in a very different way, in a very significant way. There's a, a job creation, infrastructure, industry angle here, like in you know many ways, this is a great news story. But at the same time, it doesn't really change the facts on the ground today. It doesn't necessarily change anything in terms of what Canada is dealing with right now with COVID-19. And as you say, um, it's, it's not going, you know, it's not set up necessarily to be a creating COVID-19 vaccines right and so it's kind of it's an investment that's very much related to what we're doing now but not not directed at what we're dealing with now.
0: It's funny a couple of the uh, the speakers at this thing yesterday actually kind of referenced uh, uh, the quote-unquote the good old days uh, when we did manufacture vaccines on a much grander scale. Cannot laboratories actually which is right in the same neighborhood uh, where they were talking about yesterday. uh, We still produce vaccines in this country it's just not vaccines that are going to be applicable to what we're dealing with now.
2: Yeah and I mean I think part of what we've been dealing with obviously throughout this this period with COVID-19 is partnering with countries and trying to make sure that we're not vulnerable even though we don't have the same capacity here obviously as they do in the UK and the US but despite the fact that Canada has has, has good relationships and is part of the G7 and you know we're we're certainly in a period and even you know with with respect to President Biden's administration like we're we're certainly in a period where everybody is talking about multilateralism and partnerships and cooperation but still you know we can see this this pandemic has exposed many vulnerabilities um of very different you know of all different kinds but also we're seeing that from canada's perspective we don't have that capacity and so you know god forbid we're ever in this hell again we want to not we, we want to be in a stronger position
0: and again, to your point, I think a lot of people before the announcement was made thought, oh, they're going to start doing the COVID vaccine here, and, and we want to be clear, they're not. Uh, mm-hmm. But they are going to be producing flu vaccines, and, and I know that you can't compare the influenza uh, epidemics or the influenza that we get from a year-to-year basis here uh, with the coronavirus, but they are cousins. So, I mean, if you're going to develop a vaccine like this, would it be that difficult to start to to, to pivot a little bit and start looking at some of the other COVID vaccines that have been developed?
2: Well, that's it. I mean, when we're talking about biomanufacturing and we're talking about a whole industry, we're talking about research and development capacity, the concept of capacity means, you know, this is not, in, and this is going to be a huge operation. I mean, this is not intended to be limited, I don't think. I think we, we're we looking at something that would be able to diversify and move to different things and focus in different areas and have a, have a lot of capacity to produce different kinds of vaccines. And I think one of the things, too, that we've, we're starting to do now in that it's unfortunately been a year since this this whole thing has been happening you know in full swing is that we're starting to have some of the information and some of the data to do a bit of a look back in how did we handle this how was this handled from day one and I think part of what the pressure is on governments and and you know everybody involved is to say like you know when when did we start planning for this and when did we know about this and what can we do to be better prepared the next time and so this is about that i think too right this is about making sure that if this again if this ever happens again the capacity within canada to deal with this is as strong as possible
0: and and to your point i mean the uh, the epidemiologists and the experts that we're talking to said uh, you know it's not a matter of if it's going to happen again it's when and how severe it's going to be i mean these things have been around for the longest time and we always thought it was something that happened over there and never here uh but with ebola and with sars and a few other things that we've had i mean we had warning signs that this was going to happen didn't we
2: and I mean, I think you've hit on a really critical point, right, is that we like part of thinking about multilateralism, th- part of thinking about being in a global community is none of us is, is alone, you know, non, none, no country, no community, like no matter what happens, if there's a vulnerability, if there's a risk somewhere, there's no immunity for the rest of the world. And so we really do have to start thinking differently about what kind of risk we're dealing with and how to manage that. And so I think you know obviously, I mean, part of the conversation here too, I think, is that we're we're looking in the weeks ahead for the federal government to produce a budget, which they haven't done since they were elected in October of 2019. And so I think there, like we're you know we're talking about this announcement right now of of this particular uh, you know setup. But I think we'll probably get a little bit more context in the budget overall, what is the plan for building capacity? What is the plan for not ju- and not just in terms of vaccines, but creating jobs, getting infrastructure started, rebuilding the economy after COVID. And this is part of that. And clearly, Minister Champagne is, is hitting those notes when he speaks about this. And so perhaps in the coming weeks, too, we'll get a bit more of a sense of, of what else is going to happen, you know, for, for the steps we're going to take going forward.
0: I, I know we're getting into the business end of things but that's certainly you know part of the discussion here uh we're surprised that, uh, that that there's a private sector company like sanofi that was actually interested in doing this because what we have been told earlier is one of the reasons why a lot of these companies who used to work here uh, have left is because they didn't think it was a very good environment to grow their businesses uh and that's why the pfizers and other places seem to seek uh, ground in places like germany and, and 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 other places and certainly in india where they're doing some manufacturing now too have we changed that mindset now are we are we reaching out and trying to become more attractive to these companies?
2: Well, I think that's what Minister Champagne would say. You know, he would say, listen, this is all part of my plan to to build infrastructure in the country and to build our biomanufacturing capacity. And I think he he would say, you know, that his government is trying to work to rebuild that and to make Canada a, a, an attractive place for for companies to invest. And so, again, that's why I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, this is one announcement, this is one thing, this is good what else what else are we going to do to make sure that this is this is supported and fortified going forward
0: well, and I guess we have to, to pair this with the story we heard a couple of months ago now but the, the commitment they were making in Montreal, of course, to Novavax, uh, and what's going to be going on there. And again, we need to caution our listeners. I mean, that's not going to happen anytime soon. I know they're moving ahead a little faster with the development of the vaccine there than they had anticipated, but there's still a lot of hoops to go through before that. So, uh, are, are these the beginnings then of, of establishing this biochemistry, uh, cluster that we'd like to see in this country?
2: perhaps you know like i mean it, it sounds like from what the minister is saying um he's this is one step this is part of a plan and he's looking at how canada and perhaps different regions of the country too can can be in, be involved in, in this effort to try to make sure that we are We're building that capacity as much as we can because i think you know the when the government is looking ahead and i don't mean to put a completely political lens on this i'm just trying to get in their heads a little bit to figure out what they're thinking and what they're planning but i mean the government is in a minority position and the government is going to be giving this budget and saying you know here's our plan here's what we want and here's i think people are going to be listening for is the government's proposed plan hitting the notes that we we really need And not just about vaccines now, but about capacity for vaccines later and capacity for economic development, research and development. You know, people are listening for those big pieces. This is not going to be a chipping away budget. This is going to be a transformative budget. And so then people will be looking at the responses from other parties. Right. What is Aaron O'Toole going to to say about all of this? And so I, I think we're really heading into some major conversations, big pieces, big spending, transformative stuff. And so, yeah, and I think that's, you know, we, we have to do that. I think we've, we've been shocked and disturbed like never before. And so that's, we've, we've got to be talking about the big pieces now
0: well and that's a box i think a lot of people wanted to see checked here how you know what's your long-term plan uh you know mm-hmm. the, the we have problems and a lot of concerns about the vaccination program and the rollout for that and the availability of product uh, but it kept coming back to the fact that well we're relying on other people and, and it seems as if yeah okay uh, we got a solution to this it's it's not short-term but there's no way there could be a short-term solution to this is there
2: you can't make these yeah. things
0: happen overnight
2: you got it i mean obviously looking at this and you know regardless i mean even though the two orders of government in for are in for millions of dollars the you know the the private company is on board but still it's going to take years to actually get this thing up and running and so no like this isn't something that we can pivot on overnight but i mean every time i think that a community that an individual that a business feels the shock of this pandemic again right like heading into a lockdown again you know, people can't help but sit there and think, oh, God, right? Like, what could we have done? Why are we here again? Right? And, you know, we've got vaccines. Like, you can see the government starting to really, you know, cr- like there's that intergovernmental tension that was going to happen. You know, we're trying to roll the vaccines out, but we don't have enough. And then the federal government is defending their vaccine plan and defending what the procurement. And so we're just, we're there in the nasty eye of it. Right. And so this the government has to show that they know that that's an issue and that they're they're making sure that we're you know, we're just more ready for this if this ever happens
0: again and the other element to this too and let's work on that assumption that that maybe there is going to be some semblance of this hopefully not as 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 drastic as the pandemic are enduring right now but there's going to be something uh by 2027 when this plant seems to be up and running and of course the montreal plant will be operational by then as well we're told uh if there's going to be another virus we have no idea what it's going to look like and, and even whether the vaccine that we're developing right now or the vaccines are even going to be effective about that so i mean there's there's a lot of work yet to be done here we can't rest on our laurels here can we
2: No, and I think that's why um, the piece on the research and development is really important. It's not just, I mean, so it's not obviously not just about sort of focusing on one thing or focusing on a a finite number of things and saying we're going to work on those vaccines. It's also the ability to anticipate and to pivot when that's what we need. And so, you know, if this is something that's going to need, like if we, again, this is that one announcement, then it's really encouraging. But if we're going to see a real development of the biomanufacturing sector in Canada It's going to need constant support from government. It's going to need constant buy-in from the private sector. Like, we, this is going to be a whole new sector of the economy. Obviously, job creation, obviously, you know, research and development. Very exciting for researchers who are doing this work and and who want to contribute. And so, you know, I I think this could be really a, a very, very pivotal thing.
0: Well, and that's one of the takeaways that I guess we as as taxpayers and citizens here, Dr. can't forget, is, uh, you know, every time we said, wow, isn't this miraculous that within a year they've developed vaccines for this thing? How does that happen? It's because the government dumped a lot of money into it, a lot of money, and simply said, look okay, at, you know, whatever it takes, get this done. I'm not suggesting that that should be their mindset for everything, but I mean, there has to be a financial commitment to this. And yesterday was, it's a good first step to this, but I mean, you're right. Uh, you know, the further we get away from this pandemic, you know, in 2022, 2023, uh, our government's going to say, "Oh yeah, well, that was then, this is now. we don't really need that kind of money that that's that's the sort of mindset that we don't want to see happening
2: well and and it's really tough because it's such a huge investment, and when there are always competing demands on the government's priorities, and it's you know we're getting into the whole issue of of how do we maintain long term focus, how do we plan for things and anticipate and do the you know do to work and make the difficult choices?" even when something is not exploding in front of us? Like, this is, I mean, obviously a a really critical question when it comes to something like pandemic planning and, and, you know, emergency planning and things like that. But, I mean, in all kinds of sectors, right, like how do you get a long-term focus in government when the electoral cycle is short, when, you know, governments and public services can't be blamed for dealing with the problems that are in front of you? Because there's always too many problems looking you in the face. So, you know, how do we kind of say, okay, but we've also got to be doing that R&D. We've got to be doing that capacity building in things that aren't necessarily blowing up yet, but they could.
0: The other element to this, too, and I just, you know, to just lay the groundwork for this is, uh, it's not as if we're necessarily starting with a, a blank slate here. Uh, obviously there's some expertise and, and there is a lot of expertise when it comes to vaccine development and, and, and epidemiology here. We've got some world-class experts here. Many of them, uh, because we didn't have the facilities here, we're working in some of those other areas. Uh, you know, some from McMaster here were working over on, in, in London, the Oxford Zenica and Pfizer, uh, development. So I mean, that, that expert to, is here. Uh, it be great if we could bring it home and say, okay, let's develop it here and let the, let it foster here.
2: You got it. And I mean, absolutely. There, there are pe- there are scientists, there are researchers in universities across the country that are doing amazing work. We have, you know, incredible capacity here. Um, I'd I would be amiss if I remiss if I didn't um, you know do a shout out to my own university and of course, say and, and amazing yeah. oh my goodness, like we, we have amazing capacity here at Dalhousie. And so I think it's you know for people who are who are doing this work This is, you know, no one's going to get no one's going to get excited about a a disaster. No one wants that. But I mean, the work involved in in trying to protect us from these kinds of things is such rewarding work for, for, you know, for scientists in this area. And so I think, you know, we're very well situated. We have extremely strong universities in Canada. And so I think, you know, this is this is something that we can do.
0: Well, we've had to pivot in the past. I mean, you know, we understood that, you know, the the economies are changing. I mean, you know, we're we're not just using factories anymore. It's advanced manufacturing. Uh, Tech was a big thing, and I think everybody wanted to emulate Waterloo then and say, okay, can we be like them? Uh, You don't have to be like them. You have to develop something of of your own that's along those lines. And we're doing that in different parts of the country right now very effectively. So uh, I I think we have the ability to pivot and, and to be a player here
2: absolutely and i mean it's it's also really important i think especially when we're thinking about not only how how do we start these initiatives but how do we follow them through and support them you know for years and years it's really important for governments to work well with universities and for universities to make to, to be plugged into government conversations and private sector conversations because something like this like obviously like something like like building biomanufacturing capacity again so much money so much commitment. You need universities, you need government, you need private sector. Nobody can do it alone. And so it's really important for us to be creating those conversations and creating, you know, understanding what universities can do, not only for to build economic resilience, but also, you know, public health, like science, like this is why we're here. This is what universities are for. And so I think this is just, it's really exciting that we're, we're kind of getting some good signals that this is something that, that we're going to be able to make progress on.
0: And just to find because I know that the, the private sector is also involved in an awful lot of the research that goes on at universities, uh, but we've also noticed there's a direct correlation. When governments start reducing funding, the private sector money tends to dry up, too. Uh, so the government has to take the lead on this, and that's something we have to remind them about, I guess, I'm almost on a daily basis. Uh, always a pleasure, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. Have a great weekend. You, too.
2: Thank you so much D- for having me on.
0: Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that I bet you don't pay a whole lot of attention to, but you should, and it's noise pollution. Now, I know we complain, you know, the, uh, the car horn, the sound of motorcycles at 3 o'clock in the morning going down your street, that sort of stuff. I get that. And it's bothersome. And we know that sometimes it can interrupt sleep patterns, and I guess we just, you know, well, i got to get used to it. That's the way things are. Well, you don't, because uh, uh, there, there are some much... Much more intense uh, reactions that your body is actually getting to noise pollution and it can actually lead to some very serious problems. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Tor Anormal, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Ryerson University. Doctor thank you for the time glad you could be with us today.
3: Hi, happy, happy to join.
0: I, I read a, a piece uh, that was uh, actually describing exactly what's going on here, and like I say, aside from the obvious, you know, it bothers us, and you know, we, it, we're worried about our hearing and things of this nature. But there is a linkage here uh, between excessive noise over a period of time and cardiac problems. Maybe you could explain to our listeners how that happens.
3: Yeah, so this is uh, it's, a, it's a field of study that's certainly still evolving. It's been uh, a few decades uh, in, in development. We've known for. Well, a long time that um, sort of acute ex- exposures to to loud uh, and rattling noises will will uh, elicit some form of a response. Maybe that's you know an increased heart rate or some sort of stress response. But um, better you know access to technology, uh, data of different sorts, health health data, in particular, over the last few decades has Resulted in, in the ability to, to look at really big populations uh, over long periods of time, and, and along with that, having uh, really <clears throat> much more precise estimates of what kind of exposures uh, they're dealing with. So, uh, just by sort of na- nature of, of, of the field and, and the challenges that exist, that's mostly uh, been focused on transportation noises because they're uh, more, more easily modeled and, and, and measured and they're more ubiquitous and, and uh, in that sense perhaps one of the most important ones because or some of the most important ones because they're they're uh, easy to not easy but easy to target and uh, uh, address uh, so these studies then are showing basically uh, over you know 10-15 years uh, of, of excessive noise level exposures uh, sort of constantly perhaps you know, and the, along the tune of what most of us consider normal uh, sort of background noise in a big, uh, big, busy city uh, will lead to, to certain types of stress responses uh, and, and they're, you know, minor at, at the time, I suppose, but when these happen over and over again, uh, whether it be, you know, on a daily basis or perhaps more importantly during sleep uh, and so disturbing that sleep cycle, uh, has, has been shown now to lead uh, to several outcomes of concern. Um, most concerning of those are, of course, heart heart diseases, so ischemic heart disease or, or sort of vascular uh, issues with the heart, even heart failure. Uh, now we've also found some, some uh, associations with uh, metabolic diseases, and more recently, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, because it's related to the cardiovascular system, are also... Uh, higher incidences of, of stroke mm-hmm. so the 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 associations are there the sort of the what we call the biological plausibility in the field is, is also very strong uh so, the, so that, the evidence has a lot of weight uh more recently um in 2018 the world health organization did a very comprehensive Review uh, of, of the hundreds, if not thousands of studies that have been done uh, over the last few decades and, and uh, so some of those associations that I mentioned, particularly with traffic noise, we're deemed to have very, very strong evidence.
0: It's interesting when we see this because let's face it. I guess you know a lot of us are maybe in circumstances like that. You know, somebody who lives near a, a highway like the four hundred or something and says, "Yeah, it was really bad when I first moved there." You know, but I got used to the noise. Apparently, your body never does get used to it, does it, doctor? It's still responding to it.
3: Yeah. Well, if, if we you know go, go back to sort of evolutionary biology, uh, you know, we were uh, we evolved to to use use our hearing uh, as a warning system and and if we don't know what the sound is uh it's a natural uh, response to 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 elicit some type of um stress or or fear mechanism but that doesn't necessarily have to be uh consciously when when it becomes uh something chronic over a long period of time so just exactly what you said you know it's it's you know we get we get we, we seem to get used to it, you know. Uh, there's always, perhaps more so these days, uh, even. But people, you know, have stories about moving, moving to a new house or a new place, and it takes a while to kind of get used to those those sounds and noises. So you get sort of acclimatized in some sense. But um, even while you're sleeping, uh, your 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 ears don't turn off, so the the brain can still register these things, and and uh, and, and and again have have these continual, very small, uh, but happening over repeatedly over long periods of time responses uh, can lead to uh, well, what we're now seeing actually in inflammation responses uh, in, in in vascular tissues. Uh, so
0: yeah as I started to read some of these descriptors of what's actually going on and you, uh, your point's well taken and that's one of the things I found amazing about that, even if you're asleep your body is still responding to the noise even if you, even if you don't wake up uh, the release of, of certain you know, endorphins and things like this that are going on which uh, I, as you mentioned because it's supposed to be one of our defense mechanisms, uh, the body reacts and, and, and starts to pretend hey you're, you're in peril here because there's too much noise going on so you, you could sleep right through this but your body's very active, your heart's not just slowing down it's getting active and and there's a lot of stuff going on inside you isn't there
3: yeah exactly and uh you know there are some certainly you know in- individual differences as as we all know there's uh people that can sleep sleep through a rock concert on stage perhaps yeah. and others that are, you know, very very sensitive to noise but uh an interesting finding and actually a bit of a puzzle and, and challenge for us is that we're not really seeing um, strong links between you know perceptions or, or sensitivity. Uh, so we often talk about you know noise annoyance is, is something that we measure and, and, and use as a metric for you know disturbance in a community. It's even uh, you know included in environmental assessments in some cases. Uh, but we don't it, it seems like how we, how we feel and how we think about it doesn't actually maybe matter so much in the end now. That, that's not to say so that you know everyone uh, is affected to the same extent oh. while they're sleeping and, and uh, unconscious I guess uh, and and you know there's th- this is one of you know, the, the risk factors aren't uh, huge they're, they're significant uh, you know that they're sort of a you know in the range of three to five percent increase of some of these health outcomes as uh noise levels increase by by 10 decibels or so from uh baseline levels which is basically you know if, if you go outside uh, in a city and you know, can't pick out a specific or particular noise source you know this is sort of the normal the normal hum that you would expect that's of what we consider to sort of the background levels yeah um and and so it, you know it, it falls in line with with other uh other risk factors that people might be have, whether they be, uh, you know, environmental or behavioral, individual, uh, and and sort of add add to that. You know, uh, a healthy person otherwise, you know, might might not uh, have have sort of a detrimental outcome from this, but you know, it's an increased risk.
0: Because, because the body's active. You know, I, th- I think a lot of us probably have this idea that, you know, when we're asleep, well, we do know our heart rate decreases and we're, we're at rest. And that's, the, that's the reason we go to sleep to rest our body. But it, 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 as I read the description of this doctor, it seemed as if our body, even though we may not wake up because of the noise, whether it's, it's airplane noise or, like you say, traffic noise or something, the body reacts. It, it, it's the same as if we were awake and we found ourselves in a stressful situation. You know, our heart rate increases. Uh, we get tense. Our muscles start to tense. Some blood vessels start to constrict. Uh, that's going on in our bodies, maybe not to the same level, but it is happening. And, and I, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, it it, it can cause some adverse. Real, it, it's if it's happening on a consistent basis because you're exposed to this all the time. I, I assume there's going to be some long-term damage there.
3: Yeah, that's right. So the the you know the study so far, and and again, like I mentioned at, at the beginning, you know, we're you know, it's 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 a challenging uh, it's a challenging field of study, like you know, all environmental exposures can be just because uh, you know the the bar is high for for the strength of the evidence you know we, we want to be certain when we when we come out with any any results so uh, the studies that are strong and, and that we sort of lean on uh, you know they have followed people for a long time and it, it seems you know we can't really pinpoint exactly how long or how, how many years this needs to happen you know that's mm-hmm. obviously there's obviously individual variability there but uh, you know, two two studies that we uh, published in Toronto recently, uh, looking at specifically traffic noise and and the, the outcomes, the health outcomes were, uh, as I mentioned, heart heart, heart failure, heart disease, uh, diabetes, and, and blood pressure. Uh, and, and individuals there were were followed for uh, 15 years, and and uh, over that period, we certainly saw uh, saw those those effects. Yeah
0: what do we do about this? I mean, most of us live in, in urban areas right now. I mean, this is, you know, different than it was 100 years ago. Uh, the overwhelming percentage uh, of us live in these areas, and there's noise. I mean, there's going to be traffic noise. Uh, it could be anything. It could be airports. There's, you know, planes going overhead all the time, uh, you know, jackhammers with road construction and things of this nature. Are, are there anything any measures we can take to try to mitigate the impact this could have?
3: Well, there's a lot. Uh, you know, this obviously uh, depends on what what sort of priority it is for for residents and and their and their governments, but you know one one challenging challenging situation is that our, our starting point is that you know a lot of our cities were uh designed around automobiles so mm-hmm. uh just this the physical layout uh you know the the amount of payment and streets that, that exist in, in cities probably isn't going to change a lot but you know, they're they're simple uh you know we can look to places that have have done uh done well in this um and and it goes along with with other sort of new we call them uh you know,
1: new urbanism
3: or more modern uh, contemporary ways of thinking about urban planning for for livability and walkability you know it's not just about uh, fighting and, and getting rid of the car the the, the war on the car, as some people like to, to Call it, but you know, just slowing down a, a little, bit, little bit makes a really big difference. So, you know, enforcing speed limits, which obviously has benefits for a lot of, a lot of other, uh, a, lot, a lot, of other aspects too. Uh, re, you know, rerouting traffic in certain, in certain areas of certain cities, where you know the, just because of the physics and, and physical characteristics of noise, uh, you know, two cars don't make twice as much noise as one car. So if, if you um, if you sort of funnel traffic a bit more to, to create uh, you know, more, more quiet or less, less heavily trafficked uh, you know, residential areas and, and keep, uh, keep busy volumes, uh, traffic volumes and, and, uh, to, to certain, certain arteries, that's an important uh, ability. Obviously, um, you know, we're doing certain things like putting up noise barriers and, and berms yeah. along highways. Um, and then we can go into policy as well, where you know there's definitely opportunity for for strengthening the regulatory framework uh, in 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 Ontario or Canada as a whole. You know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of these these road traffic uh, noise situations are grandfathered in basically when when uh, when projects are done. So there's an opportunity to actually reduce noise when we go and do construction and 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 redo our roads so i mean the the spectrum spectrum is quite broad um from you know the way we the way we think about it is you know you can do things at at the source you can just do things uh during transmission of the noise so just you know disturb uh disturb or block block the sound wave uh and and then you can think about things um at at the receptor so you know basically have buildings uh, and, and apartment building designs are, are coming a long way there now. The building codes have have certainly been been updated to address this. So, I, you know, things things are uh, there's a lot of little pieces that are contributing and, and um, perhaps making improvements. But then on the flip side, you know, we're, we're densifying our cities uh, and and uh, populations are growing. Traffic does not seem to be, um, you know. D- diverging from that either. So you know, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, it's, it's a constant fight, I guess, for a while. But I, I think, you know, part of it is just raising awareness. People, mm-hmm. uh, you know, studies like have been coming out recently that have led to you know, it, it being in the, in the news now, literally, I guess, uh, are, are helping to raise awareness. And if people, you know, people care more about it, uh, there, there's solutions.
0: Well, well, absolutely, and and it, yeah, you mentioned that it is a relatively new science, but the fact that, as you say, design engineers are starting to make those accommodations uh, with the way that roads are designed and sound berms that are being you know incorporated into these, they understand that there's a problem here, obviously, uh, and and you know the more information we get, I guess, more well, the more we're going to be uh, looking for solutions to this, and, and at that end, and, and say, I, I suppose we can do things within our own environment too, you know, just sound deadening curtains and things of this nature, you know, don't don't open the the windows and you know, don't sleep in the bedroom that's right beside the highway, the, a lot of stuff like that. And I guess there's always earplugs. But uh, the takeaway here, I guess, is is that this can be dangerous and it can lead to some, some pretty serious health impacts, not just a lack of sleep in situations like that, but uh, the long term. And the, the, tra- the tie to cardiac health, I think, uh, is a red flag for an awful lot of us that indicates that we need to take this seriously, don't we? Yeah.
3: And and I just want to you know, circle back to your, your last few points about, you know, there's Individual actions uh, that that we can take. I, I don't really feel like that's uh, that should be necessary. You know, no. if, if uh, you know, if, if you live somewhere where keeping your window open at night for some fresh air is, is just not possible because of uh, environmental conditions around you, then you know, I think it's a shared responsibility to deal with that. You know, as a society, and and uh, you know, as uh, from a from a government point of view. Uh, and, and again uh, you know t- to note your comment on, on cardiovascular effects we're learning we're learning more uh, we're learning more about how you know, they interact with with other exposures like air pollution and and uh, you know stressors that might come from socioeconomic situations as well so the you know it, it's a complicated complicated picture you know it fits in with it needs to be considered in context with with other, uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease in particular uh, but again you know we're making really good progress and uh, the next five, you know, five ten years I think we'll see really major breakthroughs you know from uh, a lot of the studies now being more on the observational uh, side uh, sort of environmental epidemiology designs we can call them but you know there'll, there'll be more studies now come in where you know, we can start uh, taking medical uh, approaches and, and clinical studies, and actually getting you know, bi- biological uh, samples, like we'll, we'll be measuring you know, the, the amount of uh, inflammation markers and, and stress markers in people's blood, uh, and, and, and associating that with the, the environments that they live in. So, you know, there's there's more there's more to come, but uh, not to say the same same sense that what we already know uh isn't concerning and shouldn't shouldn't be acted
2: on
0: well it's a fascinating story and and I'm, i'm so glad you had some time to explain this to us and something that we need to keep in mind with all the other stuff going on in our lives we need to be cognizant of this too thanks so much for the time today doctor really do appreciate it my pleasure Take care. Dr. Toriyama, of course, uh, professor at the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.